0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Daniel Ruiz Cerna, who is the author of the book When Forests Run Amok: War and Its Afterlives in Indigenous and Afro-Colombian Territories, published by Duke University Press. Dr. Ruiz Cerna, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a privilege uh, to be here, and thank you for taking the time of uh, uh, talking with me and looking forward for this conversation.
1: Thank you. I'm so looking forward to talking with you about your book. Um, and I wanted to start with this question of, that we normally ask on the podcast. Can you tell us about yourself and how you came to write this book?
0: Okay, so I was born in Colombia. I was born and raised in Colombia, um, I grew up in a city called Bogota, which is the capital city, and I um, started my undergraduate studies in anthropology at a public university in Bogota. Um, during, during my career as an anthropologist, or doing my career in anthropology, I I had this kind of, of, of crisis because I was not very happy with, uh, with uh, academia, so I... I I decided to take a break. I stopped my studies during a year. So I went and I did an internship in the Amazon and that was like a, an experience that changed my life because I realized that uh like um that anthropology was a good thing. Like uh, that was like 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 my um what can I say not my dream but it's like I, like I was in the right path and it showed me that ethnography and being in the field with people was the main thing I wanted to do so once I I finished like my undergraduate studies I decided to to try to to get a job in order to get like more of this experience I, I, I got in the Amazon and I had the privilege of finding uh, this job with a Colombian NGO which uh, worked in in the enforcement of human rights, like in the enhancement of democracy and and, and they were building these alternatives for, for, for peace. So I knew that uh, that was the kind of thing I wanted to do. I, I knew like right away when I finished my career that I, I needed this kind of experience before uh, going to graduate school or doing something else. I, I wanted this kind of deep, pragmatic experience. So this, this uh, NGO, uh give me that opportunity. Uh, the name of this organization is, is, is the Center for Research and Popular Education. And it's one of the most important Colombian human rights watchdogs, actually. And it's run by priests, by priests of, 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 of the Company of Jesus, Jesuits. So this is a Catholic order of priests who uh, are, are heavily influenced by liberation theology, which is, you know, this approach that arose in the 60s in Latin America and that uh, interprets the Bible through the experiences of oppressed people. So I was then working with the most socially oriented wing of the Catholic Church. Uh, and, and I met a lot of priests in Chocó, the region where I, where I worked. And I, I saw how they were like, committed to, to working with, with the poor and carrying like, different projects of education and human development uh, and they, what they were doing, was supporting the work done by local organizations in Choco, in this region where I work, which is in a, a state or a, a province or a department, as we call it in Colombia, uh, with one of the like lowest standards of 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 uh, human development, uh, of health and education in the country. So, um, so yeah, I had this opportunity of working with them in this region. Um, and this kind of, of orientation, the work they were doing, of action against oppression, was uh, somehow akin to the kind of practice-oriented anthropology I was trained in uh, at the University uh, Nacional, where I where I studied. Um, though at the university, like uh, that engaged anthropology had like different roots than those of theology that uh, the priest I worked with uh, had. So. Essentially, like uh, that kind of engaged anthropology was like uh, nourished by uh, Marxism. So the anthropologists that trained me were very critical of power, and they approach uh, Marxism as an analytical tool. Okay, um, essentially, like a tool also for uh, for transformation an instrument of transformation. And and that made a lot of sense in Colombia, in a country like Colombia, because it's a very uh, it's a society marked by deeply stru- structural inequalities. And we students, we saw ourselves somehow as a kind of privileged social class. And our role was uh, not just to examine the social reality of the country, but essentially like, to try to remedy the, the social issues and the injustices that our research like, uh, uncovered. So working with communities, designing research with them, and for them was like a kind of duty. And the questions like for what or for whom you conduct research were, um, were always questions leading the design of, of, of our proposals. And that's the kind of anthropology I was trained to do. Um, and my work in this region, which is called the Bajo Atuato, consisted uh, mainly in documenting human rights violations, also supporting local organizations. Um, but also many times my work was just being there in the villages, listening and chatting to people. Uh, we call that in Spanish like acompañamiento, like be with people, be around them, uh, and we did. Uh, and that kind of, of 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 support, of 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 our presence, uh, proved to be like very important in times of all the times I was working because there was this big humanitarian crisis, uh, and many many times like the presence of urban fellows like me. Uh, prevented incursions of armed groups in some of these villages. So so our very presence also was like a means of, of, of provide some kind of security and relief to, to these peoples who were like facing these uh, terrible problems because of armed conflict. Um, so yeah, the thing is like during this time, doing this work, I saw like uh, the mini harm provoked by armed conflict, but I also uh, became aware like uh, of a lot of environmental destruction. But but some kind of, of 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 damage or harm that was like um, much more profound I, I say like it was a kind of ecological violence in the sense that was, the war was affecting uh not only the, the landscape, the setting of people but also like uh the lives of the beings that live in the forests that they live in the in the rivers, so for instance, war was provoking the anger of of the spiritual guardians that protect gave animals um. I also became aware how snakes became more aggressive to the point that shamans had a lot of trouble trying to deal with, with the poison of those snakes. Um, so I also saw how villages were like swallowed by forests and how those forests like, brought illnesses never before seen. So I I I I I I learned how these forests like, uh, were changing, were facing this violent transformation because of what was happening. Um, so, yeah, essentially I was working in this region for almost four years, and I realized that uh, um, the ideas of justice uh, uh, or the local ideas of justice emphasize a notion of, of living well that tied humans into bigger living networks. So I learned that the violence of armed conflict was not just confined to people, but also extended to the animals and to the spirits, to the plants that that... that are part of the rivers and forests. So, like, uh, at the end of that four year of work, I decided to stop my work in this region um, because I, I I felt that uh, it was the time for trying to understand uh, more deeply what was happening there. And I decided to go back to school to pursue my graduate studies in order to um, I think my aim was to to let like these beings and these experiences like make their way into my thought. So I go, I went back to school with the help of finding like uh, the conceptual tools to learn, to listen to account for this form of suffering that was embedded not only in people's bodies, but also like in this larger context that was not necessarily human. Um, so I suppose that my point here is that the experience I had like working in this region, uh, was what nourished my intellectual interests and my research questions, and not the other way around. As often happens in academia.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for for recounting your trajectory and your story um, into this into this research project. I think that's really important to think about, and it's clear that you bring to bear. Um, in this work, all of these years of experience that you had working there um, for the for the organization that you were working for. And you talked about just now how you were in this region, Bajo Trato, in the Choco region. And I wanted to ask you more about the context of the site where you did the research and so Cho- Chocó is known as this Afro-Colombian region, um, or in uh, in Colombia, and the people that you're working with, or that you were accompanying, or are Afro-Colombian and Indigenous people, and they seem to be like rural farmers and fishermen. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about this site, and uh, particularly the meaning of rivers and the lives of the people who you worked with.
0: Okay. Yes. Um, so Chocó is is is. Uh is uh, this state or a province, here in Canada we call about provinces in in US states. In Colombia, they are called departments. So this is like a department located in the northwest Colombia and borders the Pacific Ocean. So uh, in this region, like the most important river is the Atrato River, which is uh, this imposing river. But at the same time, it's, it's big, it's imposing, but it's a slow-moving river. And I remember, like, uh, like going through the literature, like some travelers described this river as a lake in a slow motion. So it was like this big river, but at the same time, like it was so silent, so quiet, like moving very, 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 very slowly. Uh, and this river is it's, 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 it's very important in this region when when you compare like the, Atra- the Atrato River with uh, other rivers like the Amazon or even the Mississippi, for instance, the Atrato is not that long, but when compared to its length, it is considered one of the rivers with the highest volume of water in the world. So, um, and all this water comes from uh, about 3,000 different small rivers and creeks, uh, but also from the rain because this region um, is one of the rainiest regions in the world. So there's a lot of water like uh, in heavens, but also in the soil, but also in, in front of rivers. So the lower or more northernmost course of this river is what I call the Bajo Atrato, which is the region where I live. Um, it's very close to the place where uh, Panama and South America are connected. Um, and this is actually like a very aquatic landscape. because Besides the rivers, there's of course, this is big tropical rainforest, but also like several several swamps, lagoons, lakes. So So water is a very important uh, uh, constituent of, of of this landscape. And, and I, I like to think about these people, the people living here, the uh, indigenous and afro colombian communities. I like uh, to think um, about them in terms of of amphibian societies because their lives and economy activities, always revolve around rivers and forests. So, for instance, hamlets and villages are all located along the banks of a river. And people always identify themselves as belonging to a particular river and come from this river, from the Salakir River, from the Domingo, Domingo River. So people belong to a river and they, their identity is shaped by this uh, deep sense of belonging to a river. So... Uh, Daily life happens in rivers. Children learn from early age to swim, but also to navigate, to go fishing. Uh, Women, for instance, spend a big deal of time in the rivers, like letting the children play, but also doing like her work, doing laundry, cleaning dishes, uh, and all the cooking utensils, cleaning the fish uh, membrane, for instance. Um, And this is something like uh, that... uh, um, Uh, caught my attention was like for instance the word they use in Spanish for cleaning fish is is actually a word that has two meanings it means simultaneously to repair and to compose so I like this idea to compose fish so I like that idea because means that uh, for instance fish more than a natural resource that taken for granted and found out there in nature fish is something like people somehow help bring into existence so composing fish, but also composing rivers, composing the landscape, people were composing things. Uh, so the same goes to rivers. They are not just like natural aquatic spaces that people take for granted, uh, but also, uh, they are actually like entities people relate with. And um, People are always taking care of rivers in many, many multiple ways, like maintaining and cleaning rivers, perhaps in the same way roads or highways are maintaining in, in our setting. So people are so interconnected with rivers uh, that the Atrato River, um, or I will say the well-being of the Atrato River, is considered like the material condition for for, for their lives, for the lives of these communities. Uh, And actually that's one of the reasons this river was granted legal personhood, which is something that happened in 2018. So this was like the second river in the world that was like granted particular rights. So the Tato River uh, is recognized as a rights-holding subject um, with a specific rights to protection, conservation, and restoration. So for people, like rivers, is, 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 is an entity. Um, the thing is, like uh, when we I say well, well, they engage with this river as an entity, it doesn't mean that it necessarily behaves as, as as a person, as a human person. Like it, 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 the river is endowed with a kind with a particular kind of personality, a particular kind of selves, um, and it reveals agency in particular ways, but in ways that are not necessarily the same as humans reveal or animals reveal their own agency. So the thing is, like, to think the river as an entity is not necessarily to assimilate its existence uh, or the kind of being the river represents, it's not necessarily to represent, to assimilate it to human ways of being. So I think that the question is not if the river is a being, but rather the kind of being it is or the kind of being that the river manifests or of, of renders possible. Uh, so I think that I, I found that like, kind of productive in my own world, like, because instead of thinking of rivers as natural resources, I was asking like, uh, what kind of person the river is and, and, and what can the river do? Um, which is like the way people relate and engage with the rivers. Um, so just a short example of the way, like you, these peoples engage uh, with the rivers in a set, like, in a set of relations uh, that I think that uh, uh, relations that help uh, enact or give life to the river as a sentient and, 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 and as a sentient beings. Yes. So, for instance, in the region uh, during the dry season, uh, there's a lot of wind that blows, and is blowing all the time, and, and the surface of the river. Uh, becomes like a, a like a, a surface uh, full of waves, a lot of waves. There's a lot of waves that complicate navigation. So uh, navigating during this time of the year is is, is 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 difficult. And actually, there are there are a lot of accidents, and in 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 the dry season, accidents are frequent. And I remember this this occasion when uh, a small boat like going at full speed uh, capsized and two men were dragged underwater. So uh, the day after this accident, uh, those people died. And the day after that accident, like the river was like very calm, very quiet, okay? With no waves at all. And the people explained to me that the reason was that the river was behaving in that way because of the death of those two men. And they told me like the river is like a, this kind of creature that demands once in a while human lives. And from the moment like the bodies of these two men were found, like the waves and wind like, were calmed, very, very calmed down. So the river was explained to me like had satisfied like, its hunger and it would be peaceful for the rest of the season, which was the case. Because after that accident, there were no more drawings, big teams that year.
1: Okay, thank you so much. Um, that came out, I think, in reading the book, the kind of knowledge that the people have with the river. And I, I like, too, how the uh, image on the cover of the book is really evocative of the centrality of rivers in people's lives, because you have this picture of someone on a boat uh, going down going down the river. And so it evokes even this idea of the highway or the road that you just talked about, how we... in say, living in, say, in the United States or something in particular cities, you know, would think about roads as being these, you know, thoroughfares, you know, that's another way of thinking about the rivers as these central means of transportation and communication and identity as well in the region where you are doing the work. Um, And I thought that that I love that first chapter because you really take us into this world um, and you show us it's this other it's this other kind of place with other logics at play. um, And you explain that very well. And so I also wanted to ask about the subtitle of the book, which includes uh, war and its afterlives. And you're looking at how violence is perpetuated against people, spirits, animals, and more than human beings. And so the war in Colombia perpetuated this violence, which displaced people from their communities. And you seem to be doing the research in the aftermath of this war, as you say, and when people are returning to their communities. And so I wondered, um, you know, for listeners, what was the nature of this conflict and who were the main actors um, in, this, in this violence?
0: Okay, yeah, that's a very tough question because it's, 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 very, it's, it's hard to try to sum up like uh, the 50 years of armed conflict in Colombia. Um, I'm going to try to do my best. Um, One one important thing here about the subtitle is like, um, I came with this idea of afterlife rather than aftermath. Um, I really like the word because there's not equivalent in Spanish. Spanish. So the idea of of afterlife is to show that uh, uh, the violence is still ongoing in the region, even if uh, armed conflict stopped like the violence and the effects are still very present in the region. Uh, and, and and the thing is like, there's still like presence of armies. I'm going to, uh, to talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, but yeah, the consequences of what happened with, with uh, forced displacement, for instance, with the killing of, of many peasants, like the consequences of those violent acts are still provoking like a lot of harm. Uh, and so this is why I engage with this idea of afterlife, but also, because my, 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 own, my own interpretation is when you name something in terms of aftermath it seems like to be like a kind of collateral effect. Okay. Uh, and the thing is like, I'm interested in showing that there's no such a thing as a collateral damage provoked by work. Uh, like uh, rather like uh, the destruction of places, the destruction of landscapes is a condition to wage war and it's even more the case in a, in, in a scenario like Colombia in a irregular warfare which is waged in the forest so uh what happens to the environment is never like uh collateral but it's consubstantial to the way war is waged um so yeah let's let's see like uh, the nature of the conflict so we have in Colombia essentially like uh, guerrilla armies uh, which started like in the 50s uh in the 60s too all like Guerrilla armies with a kind of uh, communist Marxist ideology. Uh, then they were very very strong uh, during the f- sixties. Essentially, in the eighties, they 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 grow because they started to be involved in in in, in drug trafficking. Uh, so there's this like big expansion of guerrilla armies throughout the country. So at the end of the eighties, uh, there's another like. Uh, armed actor that appears, that is the paramilitary armies. So it's essentially like some like powerful economic and political elites arming themselves or creating these armies to uh, fight against guerrillas. Um, sometimes many of these armies uh, were like uh, um, supported by politicians, even by, by economic powerful sectors in Colombia. So we have guerrilla armies, paramilitary armies, and then you have to add the state itself because we have like the official army and the state, which in the Colombian case, the state was not always like protecting people, but actually the state was like involved in, in murders of grave human rights violations. And there are a lot of cases, documented cases of how the state uh, also like engaging in, in uh, or, or wage this kind of dirty war against uh, civil population. So this is the thing. So guerrilla armies, paramilitary armies, the state, you can add, 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 to add like uh, drug trafficking um, and the money that comes from, from, from that. And in this particular region, in the 1997, there was this huge operation against the guerrilla that uh, occupied this place, this region. So it was a counter-guerrilla army operation, but this operation was conducted by the army with paramilitary forces, so both were like acting together, and that was like very well documented. And actually, because of what happened in this region, the state was condemned by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. So it was proven that the state and paramilitary armies were waging this uh, dirty war against the Afro-Colombian and indigenous peoples in this region. So during this this like military campaign, uh, uh, the communities were displaced for the lands. So they have they were forcibly displaced, I have to leave their lands, uh, and they went to a little town close to this region a town called Pavarando which in 1997, 1997 became like um uh, mm, the biggest uh, refugee camp in Colombia. So there were about 6,000 people living there. So essentially like hundreds of communities from this region were forcibly displaced. Um in 2000, from 1990 out to 2003, people engaged in this long process for, uh, of uh, returning to their lands, returning to their communities. Um, they decided to return to their lands, but their lands were occupied by paramilitary forces. just never left totally the, the, the region. So people decided to uh, go back to their lands. Even in this context of, 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 of crisis, they knew that uh, their conflicts will not like uh, end and this decided or they created this kind of uh uh local uh mechanisms or local institutions to to try to deal with the armies and to uh um create some kind of civil resistance against like against the action of these armies and, and, and they differentiate themselves as civil population and they declare that they were autonomous and and, and um what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, neutral. They were neutral uh, vis-à-vis the the armed the armed groups. So people managed to return to their lands. There was this big humanitarian crisis because uh, the hamlets were destroyed. They didn't find like their crops, their belongings. So they have to like to uh, restart once again like all their livelihoods. And it was in this context of of, of the returning to their lands that I started my work in this region. Um, After that, many people, many communities managed to get back to their lands. Others uh, decided not to go there because of security reasons. Many families decided to uh, settle on on the town, which is called Rio Sucio. Uh, So many, many, many families didn't uh, didn't go back to their lands. Um, And the pattern of settlement in the region uh, changed forever. So now we have this uh, young generation who uh, did 't grow up like in, in in the countryside but mainly in this town but uh, even though like people managed to have this kind of link with their lands with the with the with the territories of they are called uh, so they were like kids were uh, attending a school in the town but for instance families were working in, in in the countryside and bringing food bringing resources that people needed to live in the town uh, so there was this this like there was, like, with a, uh, a foot in the town and the other foot, like, in the rural area. Um, and the thing is, like, uh, we have a, a peace agreement reached in 2016 with one of these guerrillas, the FARC, which was, like, the biggest and the old guerrillas in the country. So there was this peace agreement, which brought a lot of hope. Uh, but the thing is, like, in this region... Once this uh, guerrilla uh another one show up. Uh, so essentially like uh, there's still the presence of of different armies of uh, now they are not called paramilitaries, but there are like uh kind of private armies engaging in in, in in drug traffic. Um, there's those other guerrilla armies also like uh, uh participating in the business of of of, of narco traffic. Uh, so we have st- we still have like different armed groups associated to uh, to drug production doing presence in the region and threatening still the uh, threatening still the lives of, of, of these people so um, so that's a kind of of, of the picture so yeah, we're to leave it there
1: <laughs> yeah I know that war and, and violence and conflict is is very complex um, and I think that you gave us a, a- a clear picture of, you know, of the context and what's going on. And I think that's so important for you to tell us about that since it's this critical marker in your book. Um, and it's part of your argument about, about how this violence affects, you know, uh, the landscape, the people, the, the, the more than human beings, um, uh, that you're, that you're talking about in the book. Um, and so I wanted to, to turn to, I guess, this question of these, uh, more, of the more than human, Um, because it's become, uh, as of late, I guess, uh, a really important and rich vein of anthropological theory and inquiry. And so your book has several... Uh, beings that are that are more than human beings that range from there. there there's all kinds of, of figures in the book, but one of them, as an example, is these fieras, which are these like beings that live in water. Um, and then you have another spirit called like a water mother. Um, and then the very forests themselves constitute other than human actors in the book. And so I wondered, um, what does the more than human mean to you and this project, and uh, if you could describe uh, one of the more than human entities in the book?
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, this is um, a big question, too. Um, yeah, there's, there's um, during the couple, perhaps, uh, the last two decades, there's a lot of interest in social science about, about uh, the non-human, sometimes conceptualized as more than human or other than human. But it's just this idea that uh, um, in order to, to understand or account for many social processes, we can not uh, do that without taking into consideration like the lives of other beings uh, with whom our lives as humans are deeply attached. Uh, and, and the non-human or the more than human is very important in anthropological theory because uh, it has destabilized like, a set of very anthropocentric ideas about what is to think, what is to feel what is to have agency, what is to have free will or language, etc. So for me, uh, the other than human is very important because it also destabilizes um, what it means to be a person. Because, you know, in the most basic level, even we humans, we are made of a large set of critters that call our bodies their home. Think, for instance, in the bacteria living in our guts or in our skin. So so we are not really individuals. We are really like a constellation of beings. So our very bodies is just an, an ecology of different kind of selves. Um, so this is important uh, because, um, be- because we are more and more aware that our daily lives are, uh, are lived in concert with many different entities. Uh, then even our evolution history wouldn't have been possible without the meaningful relations uh, we engage with uh, animals and plants. So our very lives depend on the connections we have with the non-human world. And that kind of interrelationality becomes more evident um, in a country like the Bajo Trato, which is like think about this uh, tropical rainforest full of animals and all kinds of beings. Um, so the lives of people are like um, intermingled with forests and rivers. And some of the beings that live in the forest and the rivers are like um, recognizable for a guy like me because they were talking about animals and plants. And yet I realized that um, many of these animals or plants were, were actually very different than the kind of uh, animals or plants I, I, I met before. Or the way that they engage with these animals and plants were different to the way I was uh, taught or told to relate with those beings. Because animals and plants were like endowed with some degrees of agency and personhood, people were asking permission to trees, uh, talking with plants, also dealing with with animals in very specific ways, in ways that that were not uh, uh, part of 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 my daily life as as as, as a urban guy. Um, so, so yeah so even those beings that one can recognize as a species animals and plants were endowed with in a set of characteristics many different that the kinds of characteristics we ascribe to to animals and plants and there are also like other set of beings uh very different like to which I have no access to at all like spirits or fieras uh, so I I, I, I have I had no access to them in the sense that I, I, I didn't see them. But uh, I was from the very beginning aware of their effects of their presence of their traces in the landscape and uh, aware of the consequences their actions have in the daily lives of, of, of these communities. So what I learned in, in this project um, on this research was that essentially, like uh yeah, our, our daily lives are intermingled with the lives of different kinds of creatures and beings, uh, but the same was uh, the same was in the case of, of armed conflict, of war. So I realized that war is also this kind of multi-species endeavor, that war is conducted and is planned always in participation with other kinds of beings. And also that the effects of war uh, simultaneously change like human and other than human realities. So uh so one of the of the uh, non-human beings I deal with, or I, I describe in the book, is uh, are called fieras, which is uh, this kind of aquatic um, creatures um, that are big and that are like uh, voracious and that may cause a lot of trouble. So this this um, I try to understand like uh, the the kind of existence of these fieras. And I realized that uh, their lives were intermingled with the rivers uh, to some extent that uh, it was difficult to differentiate between the attributes of rivers, the properties of rivers, and the bodies or the trajectories of these beings. So um, I'm going to try to elaborate on that. But The thing is like these fieras like inhabit, for instance, spheres of, of the sharp bends of rivers. Uh, there are, for instance, like giant turtles of, of fish uh, that can seek canoe uh, canoes or, or even they can sink uh, ships. Uh, and there are these stories of, of these giant giant or oh, giant fish, sorry, uh, that have even like eaten people up. So um, because this is aquatic universe, like there are a lot of lot of stories uh, around fieras. Uh, and I heard this story about one that is called sierpe, which is a kind of a snake, uh, that, that, uh, a snake that is born like at the shores of a river. But those snakes grow up. And as they grow up, they need like deeper waters. And in order to reach like, those waters, like, the sierpes provoke uh, the flood. So the rivers is overflowing because the sierpes are moving in the rivers. So the cierpe is like simultaneously, like this huge snake living underwater, but it's also the flood that it, it provokes. So this is the idea that the fieras and the attributes of the river were like intermingled. Uh, like for instance, big fish like groupers inhabit the pools, but uh, the presence in those places is what create in the first place those places. So uh, what happened for instance, to the, to the one of these pools Affect the life of the fieras and the other way around. There was cases of people hunting down this big fish, this big fish, and at the end, uh, the pool that was inhabited by this big started to dry up. So, a, a, a way of I try to conceptualize that is like a fiera simultaneously content and container. So their bodies and their spatial manifestations. Uh, are one single thing, bodies and how they manifest in the world, one single thing. So the fiera is like this southern flood and the sierpe that moves with the water, but it's also at the same time this pronounced riverbed, but also the fish that inhabits it. Um, so the story, uh, I heard one of these stories of what happened to one of these fieras during one of the... Uh, uh, fights between the region paramilitary armies and essentially there was this story of a bomb that was launched and that killed one of these fieras. and because that fiera was killed the river started to dry up so there was a uh, a very like uh, physical uh transformation of the landscape for what happened to this fera so this is why like uh, for uh feras were not just like stories that, that elders were telling me, but actually like they were concerned about uh, the sake of these Fieras because uh, living with Fieras or trying to live with Fieras is a condition to live and to navigate these rivers. Uh, and what happens to Fieras may also affect uh, the lives of rivers and obviously like the lives of people.
1: Yeah, thank you. That quest, that story that you just told about the fieras and uh, the war, um, you know, affecting them and then them drying up the landscape. I think that takes us to this question about the argument of your book, um, because in the book, you're arguing that war reconfigures ecologies and relations between humans, spirit worlds and territories and um, in the in the afterlives of war. Uh, people's relation to the living world shifts in different ways. And I liked how you stressed that um, even though you're talking about the forest, you're looking at these markers of abandonment as not just natural phenomena. So when you look at the effects of war and you see, uh, the forest growing up or buildings, you know, in ruin. It's not, th- this isn't just something that's natural. Um, and so I wondered if you could tell us more about how you're interpreting these, these shifts um, that are resulting from the, the war and the violence in, in the region.
0: Yeah, thank you for that question. I think like, uh, yeah, that, that helps me like uh, make uh, my point, which is that uh, what happens to the environment it's never uh, a kind of collateral damage, but essentially it's it's essential to the way war is waged. And that's even uh, truer in the case of the regular warfare that is waged in Colombia, which essentially takes place like in forests. So war is not only taking place in particular regions, but actually war is shaping places or war is creating places. And this is the idea that uh, I want to show like how war... Uh rather like the landscape is not just like uh, the background for, 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 for war, but also the landscape is transformed by war, but actually the very way war is waged is transforming and is creating this kind of places. Uh, and so I tried to make that argument showing like uh, how many forests or what we can see like forests uh, are actually interpreted by some of, of, of the locals as a form of ruination. Because uh, those forests grow in the absence of people, uh, and what we see, like of this powerful regenerative, uh, of this regenerative power of nature, uh, is often interpreted in this region as, or is linked, if you want to, to the human suffering provoked by forced displacement and by the, the by the killing of people. Uh, so the idea essentially and, and, and that that helps me um to locate myself uh in a controversy that is taking place in Colombia, and perhaps in in, in some of, uh some of the literature, examining uh the relationships between war and, and, and environment, is like uh there's this kind of controversy about a conservation and armed conflict. So some people in Colombia say that uh because of armed conflict, uh there has not been enough research to know about biodiversity, uh, to know more about the forest, about the Amazon, about the the Pacific lowlands, uh, that war essentially has prevented uh, uh, to reach an adequate scientific knowledge about about, uh, natural resources, about the forest, and how to use and exploit those resources. So, uh, and there's also this idea that war uh, has provoked a lot of damage to 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 natural landscapes, and there are uh, other people arguing that and showing that actually war is not necessarily bad to the environment it has prevented uh, for instance the arrival of of mining companies or or other companies to exploit natural resources in places like like the amazon so there's this controversy that war was uh, uh, Beneficial to the environment or not? Um, so the thing is, like uh, many people are saying, like, or seeing like uh, the times of war are inherently grown to the environment, which is not necessarily the case because, for instance, the times of peace uh, have been proven equally harmful to the environment because many extractivist projects carried out in the name of peace and progress prove to provoke more harm to the environment than war itself. Uh, so the thing is like I wanted to uh take uh, or take into consideration how locals were interpreting those effects of war in the landscapes uh, and, and trying to go beyond this this kind of debate between uh, destruction and hope. So uh what I realized that even uh when I was seeing like uh Forests flourishing and forest growing uh, you cannot take that uh, landscape of that flourishing of life uh, uh, you cannot take that uh, without taking into consideration the local history or the amount of human suffering that allows for instance the regeneration of forests Uh, and this is why some people saw like many of those regenerated forests as a form of ruination because they lost their livelihoods, they lost their animals, they lost their crops. Uh, um, and during the absence of people, the forest just did what they know to do, to regrow. Um, so so thinking of war in terms of, of, of the kind of conservation it allows, I think that is problematic because it's, it's taking aside, like, as I say, like the, the, the local histories of suffering behind those those landscapes. Um, and I like um, um, to compare that, that kind of ruination with, with something uh, I read um, some months ago. It was about uh, how this uh, resurgence of forests actually are attached to particular forms of, of colonialism and genocide, or in my case in my case it's about war. And it was this this paper, like uh, written by um, geographers uh, Simon Lewis and Mark Magillin, who were like arguing a bit about uh, uh, or were trying to date the beginning of the Anthropocene, and they and they published this paper showing that around at the beginning of seventeenth century, there was like a sharp drop in uh, atmospheric carbon dioxide, and they say that that drop was caused by the resurgence of forests forests that took place following the death of indigenous peoples after uh, the European colonization in the Americas. So, as you know, during the Colombian change, during the uh, European colonization of the Americans, it is estimated that, I don't know, a million of of indigenous peoples uh, died, um, largely because of smallpox and the other diseases brought by the Europeans. And um, because of many of these peoples were farmers, uh, when they died, their fields were no longer tended, and trees were able to grow, uh, to grow back. And, and those trees and those forests suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So they say like that, it's like the beginning of, of, of the Anthropocene. It's called like uh, the Orbis spike. The spike is the moment in which you can read in the geological records the beginning of one era to another. So they are saying like uh, they are proposing uh, dating the Anthropocene uh, uh, as uh, in this moment, linked to the European invasion of the Americas and to the mass deaths of indigenous peoples. So Ge- Anthropocene and genocide are like hand in hand. Um, so this is the idea that the carbon dioxide levels fell. Like uh, 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 less carbon dioxide is a good thing, but the thing, uh, the reason behind that was like what happened in the wake of a genocide. So I think that uh, that that that's kind of that illustrates also like the kind of 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 frame we have to consider at the moment of evaluating the impacts that uh, warfare. Has uh, on the environment and in the places that uh, otherwise we can take for granted.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. That's so so important. Um, I wanted to make sure we talk about the ontological nature of your argument because there are several times where you stress that the that what you're talking about is the relations between people and land. And that you talk about how these more than human entities are not just people's representations of nature. Um, and you say this, you know, consistently throughout the book. And so, for example, in, in going back to your, your um, discussion of the fietas or the beings that live in rivers, um, you write, and I'm quoting you, that they are emergent property of rivers and the human and other than human bodies or components that come together in a given rivering place. And you talk about the territory as being produced or constantly enacted through daily practices of care. And so I wondered if you could talk about this focus on uh, the relationality between people and places and um, and the other than human um, bodies that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, this is like um, something that came up uh, when trying to understand like um, the reality of the existence of these spirits and these as and, and and you can go like you, you can try to follow two different paths in order to interpret like the life of these spirits. So one is like uh, those spirits are just like beliefs are what people say about they are like they are the kind a kind of representation that they construct about reality, and the other is like uh, no those beings are objective and they live out there, and we should like try to. Uh, assess their lives uh, in a kind of positivistic way. So I try to move beyond like they are just beliefs or are they are like actual tangible beings. And I think that what they actually are is something like in between those poles. This is what I say that, it's, that, that they are co-emerging in the sense that they are the result of the multiple practices and relations people engage with in particular places. So those are relations that are that are taking place in place. Uh, so places also participate in, 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 in the making of of these beings. So this is um, this is why I, I think like uh, um, those beings are the result of the meaningful relations people engage with, and um, and when people describe beings like spirits or fieras. They are actually like um, highlighting some properties of the world, properties of the world to which we have no access because we don't spend our lives living in those places, but also because our upbringings uh, uh, impede us to have access to these beings. So this is like the kind of 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 uh, my taking that is like. Uh, those are not just beliefs of people about the world, but they through those stories of, of beings, through their engagement with those kinds of beings, they are uh, stressing properties of the world, properties that have been foreclosed to us because of our epistemological and ontological assumptions about reality and about the world. Uh, so given that, I, I had this kind of discomfort with uh, multiculturalism in the sense that uh, the multicultural state, what, for my own understanding, what it does is to make room to people's beliefs and to protect the beliefs of those peoples. And the best it does is to conceive those things as world views, but never as statements about the world itself, okay? And I wanted to take seriously what they were telling me and those things. Um, so when someone says that the spirits got mad Uh, So they are pointing out to something that uh, we cannot tackle with the the language of rights or not the language of respect or religion or other kind of multicultural language. So again, this is the idea that they are not telling us about their beliefs, but ways of conceptualizing reality. And we should engage with those concepts, with those philosophies, to call into question our own basic premises but also to show how biased our own culture is and how biased our own knowledge is. Um, so the thing is that we don't need to accept right away like the existence of spirits or of, 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 of rivers as sentient beings, uh, but we can use those ways of knowing and being to rethink our, own as, our assumptions uh, and of course uh, our own institutions. And that should be the case or even more the case in in a transitional justice scenario in which you are trying to redress or address the concerns of victims. And in order to be respectful to the experiences of victims, if you treat what they are telling you just as beliefs, like perhaps you cannot really deliver justice in a way that is meaningful to them. Uh, So yeah, so this is the thing like, uh, we should like focus more on relations. Uh, because we are made of relations, the territory is made of relations, and people are also made of relations. Uh, So these entities, spirits, fieras, madres de agua, they come to be or they emerge as a consequence of those relations. Uh, And this is a way of of, of giving more uh, ontological primacy to relations than to substances or materials. So this is why we cannot understand these beings just in terms of, of, of their materiality, or, or trying to assess their objective existence, because that will just refine our own particular Western mode of knowing and being in the world. Um, yeah, I'm going to leave it there. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this t- this takes us to the to the next question because you're talking about justice and policies, and you know, multicultural policies, and how we should interpret. Um, or, you know, how the, how redress should be carried out, right? And so um, this takes me to, I guess, the last chapter in the book where you're examining law 4633, which protect, protects the river and indicates that the territory was a victim of violence. And you explore these differences between protecting the river as a natural resource managed by people and protecting the river as a being in its own right. And so after this devastation wrought by war, um, how do you see this law and, and its capacity to redress the violence?
0: There's, there's something uh, very important that is, is happening in Colombia in this particular transitional justice system, which is like the this, this system designed to uh, try to deal with the uh, legacies of war, but also of, of bringing and and doing justice to indigenous peoples, but also to all the victims of war. So uh, something important that happened was like, uh, indigenous ways of conceptualizing things have been incorporated into the legal frame, into this uh, transitional justice system. And and this idea of territory as a victim was a concept brought by indigenous peoples, uh, because at the beginning, the state, the Colombian state designed a particular law but indigenous peoples, but indigenous organizations were, were telling, like, uh, that particular law, the way you are conceiving the law, is not really addressing our own concerns and is not really, like, uh, taking in consideration our our very experiences of war. And because we have this deeply, deep relation with, with our traditional lands, with what they call territories, uh, and because what has affected... Uh, us oh, as, as has also affected the territory, and because there were also actions that targeted uh, the territory itself, that make uh, spirits disappear. For instance, uh, we need that the state reconsider the territory as a victim. So it was a very like important step. It had to somehow decolonize justice, but uh, there has been a little uh, problem with that. It's like the way the multicultural state interprets this idea of the territory as a victim has been in, uh, by using uh, environmental language. So for many institutions of the state, when people are saying about the territory as a victim, they think they are just pointing out to the environmental consequences of war, to uh, bi- loss biodiversity, to pollution, to deforestation, and this is the thing, like, territory for people is not necessarily nature. It's not necessarily the environment. Territory is also nature, and the environment, but not only that. It's more than that, because the territory is a sentient being. Uh, so, yeah, so the thing is, like, uh, there's more and more awareness in Colombia about the impacts of war in territories, in nature, in the environment, to the point that uh, there's, like, a... a these uh, judges that are part of the transitional justice system who are like uh, uh, taking seriously this idea that nature has been a victim of war. The thing is like the way they are doing it is that they are uh, conceiving nature in a way that makes sense to us, like uh, Western societies or modern peoples, but not in a way that is necessarily consistent with the experiences of indigenous peoples. That being say like uh, for... Indigenous peoples, there's not that radical separation between nature and culture, or even if there is some kind of boundary between both. Uh, nature is something very different than what we think about nature. Nature is uh, this set of entities and uh, with personhood agency who participate in war, sometimes participate also in war, but also resist to war. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, so the thing is like, uh, there's this incorporation of indigenous knowledge uh which is very important because that can like deliver justice in ways that are more or less harmonic with uh, local understandings. Uh, but there are many challenges ahead because uh, when conceiving what's happening there in terms of what's happening to the environment, that uh, reinforces some kind of ethics of, of an ethics of environmental conservation that uh, somehow takes takes aside, like the ontological aspect of, of, of what people are, are, are pointing out or what people are telling us when they are framing their suffering in terms of suffering of spirits. So if we uh, focus only on environmental conservation or the environmental aspects of that damage, uh, we will just refine the boundary between science and culture, between those who can speak on behalf of nature, essentially like scientists, biologists, etc., and those who are just uh, speaking about re, uh, beliefs about nature, and that's and that's not necessarily the case. So that's like like, like that. Uh, that's the challenge we have ahead if we really want to engage with indigenous ontologies and with their experiences of of, of um, So yeah, some of the laws are, are are focusing more and more of the importance of the natural world, but using a language that. It stresses the importance of the natural world as a setting for the lives of people. But again, the natural world is more than a background for human actions. Actually there's this connection sometimes uh, described in terms of kinship uh, with the natural world. And, and and the power of these experiences is that they might help us destabilize those like divides that the justice or the transitional justice systems of our legal apparatus uh, uses, those divides between nature, culture, mind, body, uh, uh, internal world, external world, etc., etc. And, and this is like why it's significant to uh, uh, not just incorporate the language and the concept of indigenous peoples, but to try to th- do things otherwise with those ways of, of, of conceptualizing uh, um, with those philosophies.
1: Yeah, that's so that's so interesting. It's like, how does this idea of relationality intersect with the law and policy and the larger institutions that govern um, that, that, that many times govern what's going to happen in these places? Um, yeah. And so it's like, how can you take this knowledge and much of what you've um, what the people know in the in the region, what you've uncovered and, you know, bring it to these these entities to make um to either make policy or to um, to, to determine like what's, what's going to happen um, in these areas. And so I have uh, just one more question about the photos in the book because the book is full of images. And I know that anyone who picks up the book will be like riveted just with the world in which you're examining and um, the ideas and arguments that you're making, but also the, images and pictures in the book are just striking. And so in some ways, the images are kind of documenting what you say, um, like you're talking about, for example, ruined buildings, and then you'll see a picture of a of, of the building that you're, you know, that you're talking about as an example. But other times the images kind of exceed the text um, in, in different ways as well. And so I wondered if you could just say say whatever um, you, you want to say about the pictures in relation in relationship to the text, or the pictures in relationship to your research, um, you know, whatever you want to share about the images that you included in the book.
0: Um, thank you. I'm I'm very glad you felt that 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 uh, that um,
1: that sensation
0: with the photos because sometimes that they were intended not just to illustrate my poem but to convey their own meaning, and that that that. Uh, but that's something I, I wanted to do. Um, at the beginning, like um, I designed like two, uh, oh, I designed two chapters as photo essays. Uh, so there's one this chapter about the rivers, and there there's one about ruins and, uh, and uh, abandoned hamlets. Um, at the end, it was just one, but I, but I conceived that that particular chapter as a photo essay. It was not like I'm going to write my text and to show images to illustrate my point, but I wanted images to convey their own meaning because I was dealing with, you know, non human beings, non human lives, forms of non human memory. So I should also explore ways of conveying people, non human relationships in ways other than words because, uh, like, the relations with beings, like, sometimes exceeds. Uh, our representational ways of, of thinking and images sometimes help to do that. Uh, so yeah, photos. Some of these photos were meant to exceed like the text and to convey like their argument. And essentially, it was very helpful to me because uh, you know English is not my first language. I was writing in English, and sometimes I, I I I I I hoped or I wanted photos capture things that my onwards could not capture. Uh, it was kind of difficult to include uh, many of these pictures uh, because uh, I wanted more, but, uh, but at the same time I I, uh, I didn't want to create like an illustrated guide to <laughs> to the Prato region. Um, so the thing is like uh, from the very beginning when I was discussing with uh, my editor like this book, like I I I wanted to. Uh, Try to find some uh, some kind of design that will like uh, put these photos like like uh, uh, like oh, give importance to these photos. Uh, and sometimes that proved to be a challenge. Uh, um, I wanted like big pictures and pictures in colors, but because of editorial reasons, that's not possible. Uh, the electronic version of the book it's full of 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 pictures in color, but not the printed version. Uh, so yeah, we there was this back and forth between the designer and I, trying to to find like a way in which like uh, texts and, and and images were in a kind of dialogue and conversation. I I didn't want just like an appendix, like showing images, like 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 images were a structural part of my argument particularly in those in those chapters. Uh, so yeah, this is the thing about, about photos. I know, like, uh, thank you for your comments about photos. I have heard, like, also uh, good comments about about the quality of the photos. Uh, that was something I was interested at the beginning of my project in taking photos. Uh, but for instance, uh, I started taking photos in this region, like, uh, only, like, one year after I started working in this in this region, because uh, a, 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 a camera can be like a very intimidating tool, uh, and I didn't want to exoticize people neither. So, only once I was sure that people were feeling comfortable with uh, me hanging around with the camera, uh, I, I started to take photos. Uh, so yeah, it was like sometimes like uh, some. Some people think about uh, the cameras as the primary tools uh, or one of the primary tools to conduct research. Uh, for me, even if it was important, uh, it was something that I, I used only once I felt comfortable and I built like, a strong trust and a strong relationship with the people because uh, images also should be like respectful of of, of, of their ways of living and and. And should also like picture in or you know, make justice to, to to the complexity of their lives.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Whenever I teach ethnographic research methods, I always include a part about using the the camera to as part of the research. And we always talk about that as well. When to, when to bring out the camera, even when, if you're taking notes, when to take notes in front of people, things like that. And so I'm glad that you, that you mentioned that because it's such an important part of doing research. And so last question, um, are you working on any new projects or do you have anything planned for the future? Can you tell us like what's on the horizon for you, um, with anything teaching research, uh, you know, anything in that regard?
0: Okay. Um uh- Yeah, I'm still working or interested on on this intersection between a forest and armed conflict. So this book is documented somehow like the effects of war in forests. But now I want to take it the other way around to understand how forests shape the way violence is perpetrated, how forests shape how violence is conducted, but also how violence is experienced. So uh, the thing is like something I realized is that... uh, the relations people have with forests shape also their ideas about armed conflict, about the uh, armies, but also about justice. Uh, so this, uh, uh, the project of the kind of research I'm doing right now, is about looking at war through its connection with uh, the materiality of forests, with the affectivity of forests. Because again, forests are not just like a terrain on which war is waged, but it's also like a kind of medium through which violence is conducted and experienced. So uh, the premise of my ongoing research is like kind of simple. It's, uh like the experiences of war cannot be dissociated from the landscapes where they materialize. So I wonder about the role forests play in the interpretation that rural communities make of violence. And how is that the violence associated uh, to armed groups sometimes like seems to mirror the kinds of powers uh, often people attribute to forests. Mm, just an example of that, like one, during one of my trips to the Amazon, I was working with, with some children and I asked them to draw uh, white animals, to draw their forests and what lives in their forests. And there was this particular drawing in which like, You could see like jaguars and toucans and other beings, but there was also like a tiny figure wearing like a uniform, a camouflage uh, fatigue. So the children were drawing a guerrilla soldier as a being of the forest, as another animal living in the forest. So I I realized that they saw like those soldiers as as being of the forest, like inhabiting the forest in similar ways as animals do. So this is the thing: like forests are dangerous places, but also sometimes are places where people go to uh, enhance shamanic powers. Uh, and because guerrillas armies live in the forest, those guerrillas also have some of these powers associated to forests. They are sometimes capable of disappearing in the air. They sometimes can transform into animals. Uh, they have a big deal of knowledge about forests, about animals, behavior, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I wanted to understand like, uh, yeah, how how forests shape the way people interpret violence, but also interpret justice and the kind of powers that they ascribe to to these uh, armed groups. Um, I call it like uh, forest experiences of political violence. And and I think that is key to to try to understand that in order to, uh, again, approach war as... A phenomenon creating places, uh, but also as as a phenomenon that you cannot only explain in terms of of instrumental goals and instrumental aims, but also this a uh, big uh, deal of uh, symbols and, and and other kind of knowledge associated to war and to those who wage war.
1: That is is really fascinating and. Um... I wish you wish you the best as you embark on that project. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah. So I have been speaking with Dr. Daniel uh, Ruiz Cerna, the author of When Forests Run Amok, War and Its Afterlives in Indigenous and Afro-Colombian Territories, published by Duke University Press. Thank you so much for writing this book, and thank you for sharing it with us on the podcast.
0: No, It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me here. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for engaging with my ideas. And, um, uh, the book, uh, came out only like two months ago. Uh, I'm just, i dealing with this, uh, weird feeling about like, uh, this is something I wrote. Um, and I see people engage with my ideas. I see like the book, uh, that's it doesn't belong to me now. It's like, uh, it's out there. Like my ideas are becoming public and I'm glad that, uh, the book is triggering this kind of conversation, so very, um, very. Thank you very, very much for having me here.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's great to be in relation with you.
0: Great. <laughs> right.